back to the study of Hebrews, and this is the chapter that's often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it's a, it, it's a fabulous chapter, uh, but I think when you understand it in context, um, I think it enriches our understanding of faith. I don't know if you're somebody who was taught Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, to memorize it as the definition of faith. Um, and if so, you probably, judging by your age, maybe you would have um, even memorized the New International Version. Now faith is the, um, or what is it? Now faith is being confident, right? Some people maybe know that. Um, the ESV says now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Neither one of those are actually very good translations, and I hope to show you why that matters. Because what faith is in the Bible is seeing more and being connected to reality, not closing your eyes to reality and a leap in the dark. And, and the reason you can see that as we go through this is because this is Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 have been talking about what Jesus actually did. Not a metaphor, but something that actually happened in real space-time history, which is that Jesus entered the true heaven, heavenly heavens of heavens, right? The true heavenly temple, the inner sanctum, if you will, the holy of holies that is in heaven that the temple was only a copy of and really made purification for sins, like it said in chapter 1, and then he sat down. And so, remember, the letter of the Hebrews is written to Christians in Rome who have begun to suffer persecution, and it's going to get worse. The writer says, you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but the implication is that that's expected. And so what does the writer of Hebrews tell them about faith? Says to them that you need to be anchored in something that actually happened. Like, just trying to be optimistic about the future is not good enough. Just trying to not think about the worst thing that might happen is not good enough. You actually need to be rooted and anchored in something that actually happened. Faith is actually looking at something that's actually happened and something that guarantees something else will happen and having that break into the now. That's what Hebrews 11. And this has always been the case, as we're going to see throughout the whole Bible. Faith has always been connected to something rock solid, namely the faithfulness of God. So, if you will follow with me, I'm going to start reading um, chapter 1 in the ESV. I'm not actually going to read the whole chapter, so it's a little longer passage, but I'll try to, to read it briskly. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, 
Though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, meaning Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. This was way before that ever happened. And gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. 
By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete. Now that's a lot. And, and it speaks about faith over and over and over again. Um, we're going to pray that God would help us, and then we're going to dig into this passage. Lord, we do thank you for your grace, for your love, uh, for this history of the whole Old Testament that we've just read about. Lord, help us to understand what you have for us, your people here tonight. And for those that are trying to figure out what is this Christianity thing really all about, Lord, may you help us. Help, may you help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, faith, you know, is a word people use, um, but it's one of those words that often is misunderstood, I think, particularly when you come to the Bible, if you bring to it the ways that we tend to use that in sort of like Christianese, little Christian subculture, or even in the culture at large. See, ours is a day, I think, when faith is seen as something for the uneducated, or it's sometimes seen as a feeling. And I, and I think that not so great translation of the NIV has contributed some to that. Or some people, I think, value it as kind of a temperament that some people are just more attuned to religious things. And so they have the ability to just kind of always keep on the sunny side, as that old Carter family song goes. Uh, many people, I think, in our culture would say faith comes in when reason can go no farther. And I think, honestly, too many people raised in the church think of it that way. I mean, think of what people mean when they use the phrase walking by faith. Walking by faith usually means just sort of like kind of following whatever your heart seems to be leading you towards. That's not actually what Hebrews 11 is talking about. When people say walk by faith, do they mean living by believing that God's objective love for you transforms all of reality? Or do they mean walking by feelings 
and trying to remain confident that they're able to figure out how God is guiding them. See, what Hebrews 11 is talking about is not walking by faith, living by faith, like trying to figure out God's will for your life and just sort of being able to sense it somehow with like an extrasensory spiritual perception. Living by faith means trusting God, who he is, what he said, what he's done, in a way that it transforms reality. Hebrews 11 is teaching that what we believe about things that we can't see determines the way we live in the here and now. That's why there's this whole chapter about it for people who are about to endure intense persecution. So what is faith? What is faith? It's not a feeling of being sure. The NIV translation is particularly unhelpful, um, but even the way that the, e the ESV translates it, I think still leaves it a little confusing. Because when I read this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, it still feels like it's a feeling, a subjective attitude. But actually the Greek word there is the word for a title deed. Now I don't suspect that very many of you have ever had to deal with a title deed, though you might have a title deed to your car if the loan is paid off, right? And the bank doesn't still have the title deed. So maybe you've seen that. But for the most part, you won't really know about title deeds until you buy a house, right? But what this word is referring to is faith celebrates the title deed that we have because of what Jesus has done. And as you've been tracking with us, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 have been focusing on what Jesus actually did and why the sacrifice that he did was once for all and it actually dealt with sin. Whereas the sacrifices of the Old Testament priests were pointing to God's provision, but they actually weren't fixing the sin problem. They weren't actually reconciling people to God because they had to be repeated over and over and over again. God had built into the whole system the point that it's not working or you wouldn't have to do it over and over and over again. And that's what Hebrews has been talking about, that what Jesus did is beyond anything you could have ever hoped for. You are fully welcomed into the beloved, the fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Fully welcomed because of what Jesus has done. Bill Lane, uh, a guy who actually I had the privilege to know uh, in the last couple years before he passed away, wrote a, a fabulous commentary, two volumes on the book of Hebrews, a very noted scholar on the book of Hebrews. He says this, it is imperative that the objective sense of this term be represented in translation. Translations like confidence or assurance are untenable because they give to the term a subjective value that it does not possess. Particularly when you live in sort of this kind of romanticized culture we live in, where people think everything is about what you feel, that what you feel is reality. And then you bring that into Hebrews 11 and you make a real mess of understanding what it's talking about. It's talking about your standing in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, your standing is not going up and down based on how you're feeling. 
As one of the old Puritans used to say, Samuel Rutherford, your feelings are not the sail by which Christ sails. Like he is not dependent on what you think about him. <laughs> he is God. He is the Lord, right? So, you know, he, the way that, that Bill Lane translates it is, uh, I think I referenced this already, faith celebrates the re objective reality of the blessings for which we hope. The demonstration of events as yet unseen. On this account, the men and women, as you read, of the past received attestation by God. Uh, I, I love the, the, the last line of this quote that I put there for you. Faith has the capacity to unveil the future so that the solid reality of events as yet unseen are grasped by the believer now. That's what this is talking about. The things that aren't seen yet, but the things that are coming actually drive the way you live today. Faith brings the future, which has been secured by Christ, into the now. You can think of it this way. It's been said that the Jews looked forward to a judgment. Christians look back to a judgment that's already been settled. Which is why, you know, we, the Sabbath is no longer the end of the week. But it's the beginning. The Christian life begins with resting in the judgment that God has already made about what Jesus did. We're not looking forward hoping that we've lived well enough that one day we'll be counted worthy. That question has been settled if you're a Christian. It's not actually a question anymore, right? And that changes everything. It changes everything. Faith, you see, is a conviction that focuses on reality. It's celebrating something real. It's not a leap in the dark. It's celebrating the reality of what Jesus did. Again, it's not just a sweet pie in the sky kind of idea. It's not just a metaphor. Faith is believing in God's promises in spite of appearances and circumstances because of God's faithfulness demonstrated by what has already happened. And that's what Hebrews 7 through 10 is all about. Faith sees the priesthood of Jesus as the event that gives perspective on all of life, that sees Christ's work on our behalf as real and secure once for all. Again, it's not a leap in the dark. Faith is not shutting your eyes to reality. Faith is not refusing to look at evidence. Rather, it sees evidence that unbelief rejects. Now, I want to be respectful here, but from the biblical perspective, it's unbelievers who are shutting their eyes to reality. This is why the Bible repeatedly speaks of unbelievers as having hardened hearts, refusing to accept reality. The Bible speaks as faith, as grasping reality, rather than being a kind of escapism. Escapism are the people that say there is no God and try to live in line with that, but they're wrong. There is a God, and one day every knee will bow, right? That's just true. It's just reality. Whether you believe it or not, it's reality. 
And Christians are trying to help everyone, both in and outside of the faith, to understand reality. When we get up here at RUF, we sing these songs, and I preach from God's Word. I'm trying to provide theological orientation to what's actually real and true. Not just trying to puff you up with some ideas to help you get through the week, but to get you oriented to reality. And don't you understand, like, how cruel would it be for the writer of the Hebrews to tell these people who are about to suffer even physical torture, like, here's some nice flowery ideas, just don't think about this. No, he wants to root them in what's actually real and true. The Bible says that those who don't believe, who have ruled out certain baseline things that are true, are the ones who've taken a leap in the dark. Um, you, for, for instance, it, 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 all of the, you know, I've, I've heard it put this way, it, all of the various disciplines in the university, you know the concept of the university is a Christian concept, right? The idea that all truth is God's truth is a distinctly Christian idea. It came into the world through that. University focuses on the idea that all the disciplines are ways of understanding God and how he works in the world. And yet what's happened in so many ways uh, in the last couple centuries is all of the different disciplines that all should honor God in various ways end up being seen as like disciplines that can explain all of reality in themselves, whether it's sociology or psychology, biology, right? All of those are helpful things to understand because God has created a world and told us to, to work in it and to bring out all the God-glorifying potential built into the world. But when those disciplines think they can explain everything, they have become, by definition, idols. And they end up, like, if you're trying to understand psychology, for instance, and you don't understand that man is a worshiping being, then you're never really going to understand reality. You might make some helpful, interesting observations but your big picture understanding of why things are the way they are will always be flawed, okay? So Christians need to understand um, that we're not taking a leaf in the dark. Actually, some of the people that have rejected what it means to be truly human, there's a guy, Walker Percy, uh, novelist, maybe some of you have read some of his work. He says, bad books lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. And my friend Steve Garber likes to kind of draw out this point from that. Bad books lie, but so do bad economic policies. So do bad political philosophies. So does bad science. And it usually lies about the human condition because it tends to truncate what it means to be human. Okay? Well, faith understands God's word is true and that changes everything. Look at verse 3. Faith involves knowing that the universe was formed in response to God's powerful world. Does that mean that we shouldn't try to understand how it happened through science? No, not at all. But ultimately, if you don't understand that the creation is proclaiming God's glory, as Psalm 19 says, you're going to miss some of what it's about. Faith is also, as I've said before, a plant that's not native to the human heart. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said that, if I find faith in my heart, I know that someone must have planted it there. 
Here's another way to think of it. Faith takes possession by anticipation. Faith says it is mine, and this confidence, that ability, is a gift of pure grace. This uh, French commentator, Speak, says it this way. Faith is a guarantee of the heavenly realities for which we hope. Not only does it render them certain for us, but it envisages them as rightfully belonging to us. It is in itself an objective assurance of our definite enjoyment of them. Put it this way. Faith takes possession by anticipation of these heavenly blessings and is a genuine commencement of the divine life with the guarantee of its everlasting permanence. In other words, Jesus died for me is something you say by faith, and it doesn't just have a future reference, it's something you begin to enjoy right now. Justification, that I will be um, accounted righteous in God's sight, is something I begin to enjoy now, even though we look forward to the day when God will declare that. Uh, Romans 8 talks about the, the glorious liberty that the sons of God will enjoy and how the whole creation is longing for that, uh, to come into that liberty. We enjoy even now what it means to be a son and a daughter of God, even though the full implication and manifestation of that is still to come. It's what we call the already and the not yet. Now, let me just say this to make sure you don't miss, miss out on this thing. Faith is not a work. When it says in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It does not say he pays them a wage. A reward is very different than a wage in the Bible. God pays us a reward that we didn't really earn because he pays us what Christ has earned. That's why Jesus tells that parable um, of the landowner in Matthew 20, where everybody gets to pay the same, even though some people have only worked the last hour of the day, and he deliberately pays them in reverse order so that the people who've worked all day will realize that if you think you worked harder and therefore you deserve more, then you don't understand faith and you don't understand how the gospel works. And God wants you to understand it, therefore he deliberately tells a really upsetting parable to make clear you understand you didn't earn whatever you have. Faith is required, but faith is not a work. It's, a, it's the gift of trust in Christ that God gives to those he has accepted because of the work of Jesus on their behalf. Literally, in, in, in verse 4, when it's talking about Abel, it literally says, by which faith he received attestation from God that he was righteous. It isn't his faith that made him righteous. He received faith to believe what God had done. You see the difference? And that's why Hebrews 10.28, the same writer, quotes Habakkuk 2.4, my righteous one shall live by faith. The same verse that Paul talks about in Romans, right? They're on the same page about that. And that understanding controls all of Hebrews 11. All right. Point two, 
Faith is not a leaf in the dark, it's objective reality, it's being connected to that, it's celebrating that, it's enjoying that objective reality even now. And that means faith changes everything. Now, I am not gonna go through all these stories, though um, I do think this is actually really helpful in understanding how to read the Old Testament. And I know, like the freshman girls, you all are going through the Jesus Storybook Bible, and we've been doing that for several years, so there's lots of people in here who've really, I think, been able to sit in that and understand what a big deal that is. Um, I hope you'll never feel like you're too old for the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, because the Bible is not a history of all these heroes that we need to emulate. The point of these Old Testament stories is to focus us on the promise-keeping God. These people here in this chapter talked about are steadfast because they believe God's promises. They believe the promise-keeping God. They're steadfast because they have a steadfast God. That's the point. But also, he says here, this theme runs all through it. And again, remember the people this is written to and what they're about to endure. Faith sees that we are aliens and strangers here. A Abraham made his home in the promised land, the place he would later be given as an inheritance. In verse 9 it says, as a stranger, living in tents as a stranger, not as one who had settled down and just camped out there, right? And this is a model, Hebrews says, for how we are to live in this world. We are the ones destined, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit what? The earth. And yet, we are not yet to live like this is our home and we just settle down here. That's the same kind of already not yet that Abraham experienced and lived in. He's in the promised land, but yet the story isn't yet finished. We're living in the literal promised land right now. It's not some particular area in the Middle East, right? <laughs> like some people think that God's promises are heading towards Israel being back in this certain like area of the Middle East and then we'll know God has kept his promises. That's not the promise. That's not the promise. The promise is the, 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 the whole earth being covered with the knowledge of God and the meek inheriting the, the earth, the cosmos. So we're living in the promised land right now. Do you understand the Garden of Eden is not the same place as the promised land? And why is that? Because it's never been about geography. It's always been about the presence of God. And this is why Jesus says the temple is no longer located in one little physical spot. But God goes with us. We are his body, his temple, okay? Yet, even though we're living in the promised land now, we still don't feel like we're home. Now, I think one of the guys who captured this the best is C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've ever read his essay called Transposition. Um, I want to read a little section of it because I think it's so helpful in understanding why we feel half crazy. Um, even though, like, you be like, well, I know Jesus and I know he loves me, but mo so often I feel like I just don't fit and, and, and I'm not even made for this place. C.S. Lewis calls this the inconsolable longing. And he writes this, he says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, 
which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth, the poet, expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but that is all a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country that we have never yet visited. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited, reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And if you've read Narnia, you recognize some of the themes, right? This is him sort of spelling out in adult language what he's been writing about. We're called to live in this strange land, keeping our hope alive for the city we've been made for, but we haven't yet visited. I think that's one of the most difficult things is to recognize that even living in this earth that is frustrated because it is not yet what it shall be is where we find ourselves, right? So where do you find it difficult to admit that you're a stranger and an alien here? Where have you tried to put down roots and tried to suck all of your life out of the things that you can grasp? the relationships that you feel you can hang on to? That's an important question. Because Hebrews considers it absolutely vital for persevering in trials that you remember the frustration is to be expected. And if you find yourself only looking or feeling like I haven't found it if I'm frustrated and something must be wrong. Maybe I need to go pursue something else. Maybe Jesus isn't really it. Well, you see, you need to understand you're made for a city that's not yet arrived. But it's coming. And that future reality you enjoy even now, but part of enjoying it is, is sort of having that inconsolable secret exposed. It's painful. It's painful. Faith knows that. It knows that God's promise defines reality. We have a future. You know, Joseph made them 
bury him in the promised land, even though it wasn't theirs. This is a remarkable story. Joseph says, go back, bury me there, buy a tomb there, even though they're not living there. Because he was, he, the, the promise of God was reality. I know I'm not there. I know we're not there yet. But that's where I'm going to be because God said it. And I believe it, right? Faith knows that God's promise means we don't rely on this life for all of our joy. Notice this. It wins great victories and suffers great persecution. Did you notice that? Like as it goes through, you know the, the verse markings are not in the original text, right? The verse markings really show up at the time of the Reformation. The Geneva study, the Geneva Bible that Calvin and Knox worked on was the first English Bible to have verses written in them, okay? And so even seeing the verse marking, sometimes you might miss, this is just an absolutely smooth transition. Women received their dead back, right? Resurrection, and then other people were sawn in two. Do you know who was sawn in two, tradition says? Isaiah the prophet was seen, uh, understood to have been put in a hollow log and then sawed in two. But all of these, this is why it's so awful, the TV preachers that tell you that faith Real faith means that you will rise above sickness and sorrow and brokenness, poverty, right? And you know the kind of people I'm talking about. They need to wrestle with Hebrews 11. Some people receive their dead back in resurrection. Some were sawn in two and destitute, okay? But what's common to all of them? None of them received what was promised. None of them received what was promised. Isn't that amazing? They all died before receiving what was promised. And so will you, most likely, or me, unless Jesus comes back again. But God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Jesus said, God is the God of the living, not the dead. This is All Saints Day, which is actually a great day to be talking about Hebrews chapter 11, because the folks talked about here are not just distant memories, they're actually alive. They're actually part of the great communion of the saints. Later, actually, in the book of Hebrews, it's going to say that whenever we gather together for worship, there's more going on than just the people in this room, that we enter into this mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one pretty remarkable to think about. But again, don't limit God to what you can see, taste, touch, and smell, because reality is bigger than that. All right, a couple concluding applications. Are you waiting for a heavenly city or looking for present comfort? Now, it doesn't have to be completely either or, but no, no, that faith is not a magic formula to transform your circumstances. Faith doesn't create anything, doesn't cause anything. It receives with an open hand what God has promised, and that defines reality. What is your faith in? Is it in God's coming through for you in the way you want according to your timetable? Or is it trusting that God who sent Jesus to live and die in your place is a good God who can be trusted? The answer to that question has everything to do with how you'll weather trials. Because if you have your hope in your ability 
to get God to give you what you want by what you do and how you live, how well you love him, then when trials come, you will either be mad at God for not giving you what you think you deserve, or you'll be mad at yourself for not doing enough to deserve the life and the, and the outcome you want. You understand? If your faith is not in what Christ has done and what God has for you, then trials will destroy you. How do you get this faith? It's a supernatural gift of God. And, and honestly, have you asked for it? Have you asked for it? How does it grow? It grows by hearing, experiencing the promises of God. Gathering with God's people, hearing the word preached, the sacraments, prayer, all those things. They're called the means of grace by which we come to understand more about who God is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. And once you have it, you'll know that it's what you were made for. But in some ways, it will make life not easier all the time. Sometimes it makes life more difficult, but there's no going back. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help these people see. You can't turn back. God has promised a city that is to come, and it's coming. Let's pray together.